Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second season of The Fourth Leg. This is your host, Philip Reiner. This series is focused on one of the most complex systems in the world today, nuclear command, control, and communications, and its increasingly complicated future. With this series, together with our partner Peter Hayes at the Nautilus Institute, we're going straight to the experts across multiple sectors to discuss the technical and policy challenges associated with NC3. Specifically, here in Season 2, we will discuss the necessity for a secure global crisis communications capability. There's a great deal to cover, so let's get started. Today, we once again have the privilege of hosting Eric Gross. He's the former Vice President of Security and Privacy Engineering at Google. Before Google, Eric was a research director and a fellow at Bell Labs and has his PhD in computer science from Stanford. Currently, Eric is semi-retired, flying a Cessna 182 around the country while working on building radically simpler and much more secure systems. So there's a lot to cover, so let's get started. Thank you, Eric, and welcome back to the podcast. It's really fantastic to have you join us here again. We appreciate you taking all of this time to work with us on what is such a critical issue. As we've already discussed in, in previous podcasts, this is a series of discussions that builds off of this central Catalink concept that we worked through at the workshop last fall and that we discussed with you in the first podcast of this second season here of The Fourth Leg. All of this builds off of what in large part was your idea going back to the, the previous year and the previous workshop that we could perhaps build a secure crisis hotline system for the 21st century, something that's essentially open source and a more secure, perhaps more resilient version of the U.S. Moscow hotline from during the Cold War. You've written a paper that starts to get a little bit more down into the technical specifics of what potentially could be the foundation for a system like this. For all of our listeners out there, Eric's paper is actually something that is, is open and live for comment. We'll be sharing that with all of you. But Eric, if we could, like we try to do in a lot of these conversations, is if we could go back to what you lay out in that paper. We started to talk a little bit about it with John Gower and Subrata and Peter in that first podcast. Can you talk the listeners through, please, what it is that you put out in that paper and what it is that we are looking for people's comment on? Sure. Good to be with you again. So I recall we're imagining leaders of allied or adversarial nations that are wanting to communicate during some crisis when just picking up the phone won't work, either because they need something more secure than phone lines, or they need something more resilient than the complicated phone network, or they just want a conversation that has a little more thought and checking with stakeholders and so forth. So we're trying to build a system like that, which is, as far as we know, what the hotlines have, have traditionally uh, done for people. So in cryptography, this kind of message sending, it's traditional. Think about so-called Alice sending a message to Bob. And in your last podcast with Tom Burson, recall that if Alice and Bob can exchange some symmetric keys in advance by diplomatic pouch or whatever, then we've long known how to do this. And we get strong mathematical guarantees. The only challenge really is how to implement that in software and hardware that doesn't get hacked. There are good apps you could install on your phone, but can you secure your phone? 
So for devices operated by national leaders, we imagine the, the physical security, Tempest security is solved, or at least under control. But even the best military systems, you know, still have implementation bugs or kernel flaws or supply chains that you can't quite trust. So we're trying to see if we can make some progress on that. And our plan really is security through simplicity, which is easy to agree with as a bumper sticker. But what does it actually mean? You know, can we get concrete enough here to actually say some something that other people can attack and either disprove by example or maybe learn from? That would be great. So we're trying in that paper to write down exactly what kind of networking and display and so forth that Catalink needs and actually build a prototype system so that we can put it in front of the kinds of national leaders that would use this in real life and make sure that what we're building is is meeting something that they need and not pulling in, say, the whole Linux kernel or you know millions of lines of code. There's just no way that I know how to go about making that really secure at the level we're thinking of. Eric, for a system that is still really, I guess you could call it an abstract noun rather than a, a working verb, how does a team of developers go about setting the priorities and trading off between security, reliability, and efficiency? <laughs> yes, that's the old project management quandary. You know, good, fast, cheap, pick any two. So the solution, as you know, is you adjust the project scope so that you can pick a sensible point in that triangle of options. And for Catalink, we're picking an unusual choice in a sense. We're saying the hotline between Moscow and Washington back in the 60s, which is just a kind of teletype, represented a functionality that would still be useful today for leaders in a crisis. But computer hardware has improved by so many orders of magnitude that if we cut out the decades of software bloat, we don't need to hyper-optimize for efficiency. So in effect, what I'm saying is you know, we're prioritizing security and reliability and down-prioritizing efficiency because we can afford to do that. So what exactly would efficiency mean and what could possibly go wrong if you don't really take security and the cryptographic aspect of a crisis communications as the basis of the design, but just leave it to be an afterthought. Oh yeah, that would be catastrophic. And the problem is you you don't find out until the crisis and you maybe even don't find out about the catastrophe even after it's happened, because sometimes the, the folks reading your messages don't give you a clue that they have. And it can, as we saw in World War II say, you know, it can have a a totally dominant effect on the outcome. So you've got to get it right. But fortunately, in this space, you know, when we're talking with the kinds of people that build nuclear command and control systems, cryptography is not going to be an afterthought. That is fortunately a topic that's had a lot of work. And we know how to build sound cryptography that's not going to get broken very likely. I mean, there can always be breakthroughs, mathematical breakthroughs. There can be quantum computers, maybe at some point. But we pretty much know how to solve that part of the problem. What scares me is the part of the problem that we already know is hard. We keep getting our computers hacked. So how do we get past that? And that's where I'm saying, if you want a system that handles high-quality video conferencing with multimedia displays across lots of different commanders out in the field, 
that may actually be fairly challenging because in an era of limited bandwidth and so forth, it's, you know, you really can't afford to give up big factors of efficiency. But for the simpler design we're talking about, sure, we think we know how to do that. So, Eric, how would you know that a Catalinks crisis communication system was uh, efficient, if that's one of the design criteria? Uh, and how would you make sure as countries begin to use it, especially if it's likely to be a layer of additional complexity in some respects on their existing systems? How would you make sure that Catalink was really efficient once you know what efficient means? Yeah. So, Fortunately, here we're talking about a very finite number of national leaders. I mean, there's only a couple hundred countries in the world. So this is not a Google scale problem. We do know in advance what that's like. And so we can specify in advance a wire protocol that everybody agrees to and commits to. And then individual countries may choose to layer on a certain amount of extra checking or, or extra hiding. So, for example, in our base system, we don't do anything to defeat traffic analysis. You know, if, if, if you think back to World War II again, it wasn't just being able to do the mathematics to break a cipher. Sometimes all you have to do is see where the radio messages are coming from. If there's a bunch of radio messages coming from one particular tent, maybe that's where the commander sits, right? So there are things that a country might do to layer on additional steps, to improve the security even further. But we believe that we can give them some guarantees that are not affected by that extra step they do. And ultimately, if they modify the, the software that we give them, that's fine. It's on them to make sure they keep redoing the review and don't introduce bugs. And, and so that's the sense in which we believe we're trying to give a strong system, which others can make even better. Sorry to drill in on this issue. I just want to get clear, is Catalink or any system like it that's using uh, modern or state-of-the-art current and emerging hardware as well as software almost automatically efficient in the sense of a rate of data transfer and assurance that it gets there and is understood? Or is there some other measure of efficiency? I see. So what I mean by efficiency is we do want to send out a message that does not require a huge amount of bandwidth, for example. That's probably the limiting resource as much as anything in the kind of crisis situation we're thinking about. And so as a backup for high bandwidth internet connections, which as we've seen can certainly go down without warning, even not in a time of crisis. Uh, so we want to have a system where we can actually practice in advance that it works over radio links, say, even just high frequency radio links. So we are paying some attention to efficiency of the network in that sense. So uh, perhaps just so the listeners understand just how important this can be, one of the problems we have in our existing nuclear command and control communication system is that they're dual use. And that means if you're sharing the bandwidth, let's say you're in a war where you've got bombers flying in the air with conventional weapons and somehow nuclear weapons are simultaneously in play, in some of those systems you may have to queue the messages that are going through it because of the bandwidth limitations. And that could mean that you could get inadvertent delays of various kinds or 
you know, cybernetic sort of organizational communication, bizarre outcomes that you don't really anticipate. So this issue of efficiency is actually really important. You're saying because we're so simple and using technology that's very powerful, we can really evade that problem and just go to the core of the issue, which is get the limited but very specific communication data to the people who need it almost instantaneously. Did I get that right? Yes, approximately. We're saying there are a spectrum of different kinds of messages. I recall one of the earlier podcasts where Admiral Gower was talking about the bandwidth needs for nuclear command and control. And if I can try to paraphrase what I understood him to say, if the prime minister of Britain needs to send a message to a ballistic missile sub, there's not a lot of bandwidth needed. It's in effect, launch on target A or launch on target B or don't launch. These are fairly short messages and can get through even in the most congested environments. So you want a system where the Prime Minister of Britain can say to Mr. Putin in very, very clear terms, it may look like we're launching, but we're not, or something like that. Right. We're saying for these kinds of communications, we think it suffices to send a page of text or a, a single satellite photograph or something of that sort. If you're trying to get a, a lot of people to discuss a very complicated situation, you probably do need video conferencing and hour-long meetings and that sort of thing. That's not what we're going after with this system. I'm not saying that's not another useful system to have, but that's not the specific goal we're going after here. We're going after something that gets through in more limited network situations and still delivers a message that's larger than just launch on target A. You know, that's a pre-canned message you can afford to make really short. We're saying there should be something in between the two. Right. And you may be making these communications in a crisis in which seconds and minutes really matter. You just may not have hours for that kind of diplomatic style communication. So that's really the sort of niche, if you like, that Catalink is designed to fill. And so what you've done in this further contribution to the discussion here is you go into a greater level of detail in terms of some of those choices that need to be made. On the cryptography side, you lay out along the lines of what we were just talking about, right? The the fact that there should only be text and perhaps simple images, the only the symmetric ciphers, the face-to-face -face key exchange, and, and as you put it, the single message unidirectional transmission of how these things would actually function. I think we've already started to talk about this a little bit, but I was curious if you could unpack those specific things and kind of explain what the reasoning was behind those very specific elements of what goes into the cryptography of Catalink. Right. And so in addition to what we we're just talking about, the kinds of messages to send, symmetric ciphers are really well studied and they're resistant to all kinds of attacks. You know, even if you're worried about a quantum computer coming along, you don't really have to worry too much about these symmetric ciphers. There's not that many mathematical breakthroughs and integer factoring or something that are going to come along and, and wreck that. So, you know, I love Diffie-Hellman. I think that's one of the truly great magical ideas of all time. But we don't have that scenario where you're going to need, without any prior arrangement, to communicate to one of a million people. We're in a different context here. And so we can afford to do key management that is mathematically simpler, in effect. 
And historically, the public key cryptography implementations have had a lot of gotchas. So once again, by going to something that's much better studied and understood, there's fewer chances of misunderstanding. If we go back to the Moscow-Washington hotline, it's interesting. You know, they used a one-time pad, crypto technology from, you know, the, the beginning of the century. And it's partly because it's something that was very well understood. Everybody agreed it was secure. And it didn't reveal any cryptographic capabilities for any of the countries. All countries involved could study it and have trust in the system. It could be implemented in yet a third country, and that would be okay because all the parties involved could study the system and analyze it and be sure that there wasn't a backdoor lurking in there. So that's where we're going after there. Uh, on the networking topic that you asked about, um, that's obviously essential. But what we see when we try to prune down a system to you know fewer lines of code, often we'll see the networking stack is as large as the whole rest of the operating system. Again, as we try to find a design that is simple enough that we think we can implement it in a secure way, networking is one of the first areas of concern for us. So that's a place where we're playing around. Networking is interesting because you can try to innovate, but you can't make it all from scratch because you have people trying to communicate. And so any one person who invents something brand new may have built a great system, but they won't be able to talk to anyone else because no one else is using that. So we're trying to find a simple piece of networking that is still interoperable with the great world that's out there. And that's a challenge, but we're making some progress, so I'm hopeful. Eric, you, you touched on this already, but could you lay out a bit more the relative merits of sending text versus audiovisual content, uh, both from a security and communication viewpoint? And in your design work, what do you consider to be the highest priority and the most secure and lowest risk way of, of communicating data in a crisis. Right. So I don't mean to imply we're adamantly opposed to video, you know, especially if you've got the network bandwidth available, fine. It's That may be very useful, especially for a group of people who all come from the same culture so they can read each other's body language and so forth without misunderstanding. But in technical terms, we need to be totally confident both ourselves and in a way that skeptics abroad can also persuade themselves that there's no vulnerability in the code that handles the video, right? And parsing is traditionally a place where people get things wrong. They'll have buffer overflows or whatever. And video is an example of that. Fancy image processing can be an example of that. So, as an example, look at the uh, Facebook-FBI collaboration that just made the news in the last week or two to take down this particular heinous criminal activity. The criminal in this case was using the Tails operating system, which is very good, and that hides tracks very well. It's hard to catch somebody like that. But in this case, because he was sending videos, I guess they were able to find a zero-day vulnerability in the video parsing code, and using that, they're able to figure out where he was and then 
go arrest the guy. So great outcome in a criminal sense, right? But you can see why we're trying to be super careful to not introduce vulnerabilities of that sort. And that's why I feel kind of vindicated in this decision that we're debating here. Yep. I didn't know about Facebook FBI, but I knew something like that was liable to happen. If I can pull that thread a little bit, because it touches on something that we spoke about with Ron Minnick a couple of weeks ago, where in considering the types of, well, the, the elements that would need to go into this, and we've been talking a lot about open source and using those tools as part of this design to make this more secure. What is your sense, as you just noted in that Facebook FBI instance, right, where they were able to find that zero day, going with open source as kind of the way to go with with how we would build Catalink, what sort of vulnerabilities could that potentially introduce? I know we hear from some who are uh, working hard, perhaps in classified circles that open source just makes their lives more difficult. What's your sense as to perhaps what those vulnerabilities could look like that could come from using open source as the tool set? Well, I don't know who you're referring to in particular, but if there are the signals intelligence people and open source is making their life hard, well, then I guess from our perspective today, that's a good thing. Right? We're trying to build a system that, that's hard for doing signals intercept. So I think implicit here is this notion that there ought to be some ability to re-implement things yourself. And that is, we're creating a specification and a reference implementation. But if you don't want to trust anybody else, you could re-implement from scratch. Or you could decide the software is okay, you've reviewed that, but you don't trust a chip that you buy from a from somewhere far away. So you choose to re-implement the hardware using your own fabrication line. That would be perfectly fine. In fact, a variety of implementations can give insight. So that's a good thing. And even beyond that, the design itself tries to recognize that there's can be national sovereignty issues, you know, a matter of pride almost, you know, which cipher should we pick? Well, let's not just pick one designed by our adversary. The design of our system says whoever sends the message gets to choose their own key, their own cipher. It's up to them to pick that. The only thing we have to agree on is because the decryption software is going to be run by someone else, that recipient needs to trust that they can safely run the decryption software without any risk of a vulnerability. So that's the constraint here. You can use whatever you want, but skeptics on the other side are going to have to be able to verify that that they're prepared to run it on their own computer safely. But we're leaving enough room that, let's say, a country has some secret watermarking message that they want to use on this message they're sending out so that if somebody leaks the message, they'll know who it was. Great. We're okay with that. We're not putting watermarking into the system ourselves, but we're not opposed to that existing. So that would be a local customization, the kind we're talking about. And and we're certainly happy for that. Eric, there are already, I think, 10 or 11 uh, hotlines, which are two-way streets between the existing nine uh, nuclear-armed states that we share this tiny planet with. And they're bilateral, they're two ways, just two players. But the reality is in almost any conceivable 
nuclear crisis or nuclear war for that matter, uh, there are going to be more than two people involved in the conversation. Almost certainly it's going to be three plus communication lines between the leaders, not just one or two states. So if you assume that that's the case, are there new and, and more stringent technical and security, I was going to say obligations, but perhaps implications on you as a designer to ensure that multiple parties can communicate simultaneously via a shared hotline system like Catalink, which might be operating simultaneously with the existing nuclear hotlines? That's a great question. And I must say, when I first sketched out a design here, I was also thinking, just like the Moscow-Washington hotline, of Alice talking to Bob, you know, a point-to-point link like that. And I credit uh, Admiral Gower for pointing out that this is a rather American perspective. And from Europe, it doesn't look sensible. I think so. I, that was a great insight. I really appreciated that comment that, you know, in the actual world, it's been more than two big superpowers talking to themselves and everybody else just has to wait for them to, to settle it. That's not a good representation of the real world. So we, we do want to support group communication. On the other hand, technically, from a cryptography perspective, there exist group key management protocols, but they're definitely more complicated than what we're talking about. And again, I worry not just about getting something that's secure, but getting something that is so simple that a dozen different skeptical countries around the world can all agree that it's secure. That's a higher bar to meet. So again, from this trade-off perspective that we were discussing earlier about security and reliability and understandability and simplicity versus efficiency, I decided, you know what, if we have a secure way for Alice to talk to Bob and Alice wants to talk to both Bob and Carol, why don't we just take the brute force approach? Alice sends the message to Bob and she sends the message independently to Carol And she probably tells both Bob and Carol, I'm sending this message to both of you. So if you're going to reply, reply to everyone. So you can still have a group communication without introducing any mathematical complexity. And so we're saying, in effect, you know, because of the small number of people that will be on this group line, we can afford that slight inefficiency. Well, I guess that's not really a hypothetical situation at this point. I mean, President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un insulting each other and missiles firing and and all the rest of it a couple of years ago, there were actually, what, one, two, three, four, five parties, one, two, three of whom were nuclear-armed involved in the communications related to that crisis. So that's China. Russia, North Korea, South Korea, and the United States. And there are a bunch of hotlines you know, in play in that situation that were actually used at various times. And then I guess last year, President Trump actually gave, uh, reportedly gave Kim Jong-un his private cell phone number. That's reportedly not a highly secure number, but it does strike me you need some kind of protocol for that technical solution, which might be a bit efficient, but practical to work uh, so that there were no rude surprises. But that's precisely the political task, if you like, of rolling this out. Who do you think in that context would be really responsible for training the people who would actually handle the devices? Uh, Would countries train their own people? Would there need to be some exchange of instructions from the developers? 
Does the guy or gal who's carrying the satchel in each country have this thing in their pocket? How, how do you envision that happening? Uh, yes, it's just as you say, and I'm sure each country would do their own training of their own people and have their own protocols for assessing how trustworthy that person is and making sure that they are physically guarded as they travel around and so forth. So yes, that's pretty much we're falling back on existing country-specific means. I do think it's worth our group writing down a suggested set of training instructions, making that part of this open source collection, and debating whether there are holes introduced through those instructions. You know, so to the extent that we can all agree, here's a system that's secure more or less as it stands, but of course a system really involves all the people as well. So when we do red teaming against the system we build, it should be no holds barred. The red team gets to go after the training as well as the physical object. Uh, but yes, each country is in charge. So the first country to play with a second country, in a sense, might set the best practice or worst practice standards. But having us specify at the outset, the designers of the Catalink uh, at the outset, what should be best practice is really critical in your view. That's right. But we'll take a first stab at it. Um, I'm already doing a little bit of that. I, I think it's not just about the training, though. It's really about what is the crucial functionality. So in talking about the the case of multiple nations needing to talk with each other, I only talked about the technical problem of group key management. But, you know, there are non-technical issues here as well. To what extent, especially when you have multiple people involved, do you worry about being able to prove who sent what message? Or Alice says to Bob that she's sending the message to Carol as well as Bob. But later, Carol says, well, I never got it. Right? There are a lot of non-technical things here that one could try to address through mathematics, or one could decide that's a, a degree of ambiguity that actually has some utility in the real world. And the national leaders like being able to say things without being held to it. That is, they can send the message, and there's no way to prove that they were the one that sent it. That may be a thing that they like. So this is why I say we need to build something, have the red teams attack it, not succeed, finally take it to their national leader and say, yeah, boss, this seems reasonably strong. It's okay with us if you want to use it. And then they can tell us, well, yeah, that's a good system. We're glad it's strong, but it it needs the following additional improvement. So this will be an iterative process. I look forward to that. But we're taking a first stab at what functionality would be useful. And we'll, we look forward to the feedback. In a pandemic world where communication may actually become more distant and actually slower and more difficult and even more bureaucratic as people start to hunker down, as a lot of analysts predicting in, in the international relations and security world, this system, because it's radically simple and secure and relatively easy to get up, might actually have a, a new attraction because of the COVID conditions or the next pandemic conditions in which it's operating. Yes, I hope so. And and we do have to adapt a little. My notion that the national leaders see each other at a meeting at, at the UN or the G7 or something is not necessarily going to happen in the current pandemic environment. So uh, we, we are adjusting the design slightly to make it crystal clear how if the president and the prime minister can't physically get together, 
their military attaches at least can get together and securely do the key exchange and so forth. So yes, we're thinking about the pandemic and trying to make sure what we build is adapting to the times. Well, could you actually just go a little bit further into that explanation? I think there's probably listeners who who may have picked up on this in previous conversation, but just to give a little bit more detail on what it is you mean exactly by by the key exchange. So how would this actually work and what does that begin to address in terms of alleviating some of the concern one might have as, as to who is actually sending a message? How does this synchronization of keys actually work? And what happens, you know, if, if one were to misplace one of these things? What's the what's the fallback to actually ensure that these devices are these trusted, reliable tools for these these leaders to have these conversations? Right. Okay. A lot of a lot of questions in there. Let me see if I can catch some. So what I'm envisioning is Alice and Bob get together in a single room face-to-face with these little uh, gadgets, and they pull out a Cat5 Ethernet cable, and they plug these two boxes together. These gadgets are not connected to any other networks, just these two. And the software looks and sees, oh, yes, okay, I'm connected to one other piece, and my operator's telling me, send a candidate key over to the other device. And so Alice, in effect, proposes, here's my key. Here's the best way to send me messages, you know, at this IP address or on this radio frequency or by this courier or something. And that can happen directly in a way that doesn't require a great deal of understanding of mathematics. I mean, these are humans who can see the other person and satisfy themselves. Yes, I know who I'm talking to here in the room. It's not like there's some deep fake or some other kind of a man in the middle attack going on. I can see with my own eyes who it is I'm talking to. And that's the basis of giving them enough judgment on who they're having to trust in order to make this work. So that, that's the sense, though. It's, there's nothing super fancy here, right? We're just literally saying, take these two small computers and physically plug them together, and they'll exchange the keys, and then when, and you unplug them, and you can now send messages from a long way away. That's the kind of thing. Now, if we have to do something fancier, we know about M out of N secret sharing and, and all kinds of other technology. We'll see. And there can be concerns about did that key exchange work? You know, how do we confirm once we're back home that it actually is working? And it's working at the start, but will it still be working six months from now? So we assume that the operations procedures will involve periodic health checks and so forth. So there's there's a lot of that we are thinking about. And I, I'd urge people to, you know, go dig into the paper and and file some comments there. Eric, I, I love the notion of Bob talking to Alice or Alice talking to Bob. Of course, we are in the wonderland of nuclear war. How how are you going to program the devices to work given that they all have, well, some of them have multiple languages, but official languages have to be declared? How does translation work? Is it done in advance and so on? Yeah, so one of the things I always love about reading science fiction, it seems that everyone in the galaxy speaks English. It's so convenient, but uh, that's not real. Uh, One of the reasons that we think sending a letter, page of text as a message, as opposed to just opening video links, is that you do get more of a chance to think hard about the translation. And I'm leaving this up to the national leaders. I don't think that those of us on the project have the experience to 
really speak authoritatively on this, but my guess is the way to go is to send your message in your own native language and perhaps append and what should I say, unofficial or uh, unauthoritative translation. And then at the receiving side, the person who's operating the equipment can then look quickly at that translation and sort of decide things like, what's the priority? Do I need to go wake up my boss or not for this handling this message? But then the recipient will have their own translator who will do the official authoritative translation. And the leader reads this, thinks about it, writes his reply, maybe does a little translation. In his reply, he probably wants to at least paraphrase the initial message. All of these are just to minimize the chance of a misunderstanding leading to something major. The other thought we have on this is that there can be some kinds of messages that have to, especially the messages that are super urgent, have to get through right away, where you have a message prepared in advance and everybody agrees on the translation in advance, and you can even reduce it to a short code word. And that's a message that you can send with very little bandwidth and with assurance that there won't be any delay for translation and that there won't be any misunderstanding through translation. So uh, even NATO, for example, has, I'm told, prearranged code words that mean certain things. And so we think that's another good thing to adopt. So we're all used to trying to figure out when someone you know, sent us a message from another time zone on our email, how do the date uniqueness and timestamps that you mentioned in a Catalink work across or through the different time zones? Okay. So first of all, we, we do support multiple languages because our text is all UTF-8, so-called. So it supports Unicode, so people get to at least send their text in their native language with the kinds of character sets they're used to. Uh, the time stamp is attached to each message. Each message has a timestamp of when it was composed. And the recipient will look at that timestamp. And if it looks wildly wrong, if, you know, if it says it was written yesterday, then that will, of course, cause some concern. It's clear that something bad has happened. Either there was enormous network delay or people's clocks are getting out of sync or something. Who knows? But there's nothing in our protocol that demands very precise time synchronization. We know that's hard to achieve. We can all use GPS and have very precise time. But in the real world, you'd be amazed at at the number of flaws that happen when you assume time synchronization, especially across leap seconds and and so forth. So uh, we're not assuming anything up except kind of rough correspondence on time. Does that answer your question? I think it starts to, and it raises a couple others on this same theme of, uh, in terms of level of detail that we're going into on how this would actually work. The technical specifications of this, how much does that constrain memory. So how much does that constrain what gets stored? Does does the message get deleted? Does it disappear as, as it would perhaps in signal? Um, how does that log element of the device actually work in your estimation? Uh, so that's, that's a good point. That's the kind of functionality questions that I was talking about, possibly needing to iterate the design on. But my guess is that for this kind of material, we're not looking for ephemeral messages. I think 
this is the kind of thing where countries are going to save a copy of all the text. So I'm not trying to achieve ephemeral messages or not adding any cryptographic measures for that. Uh, I assume those are things that would be stored. One of the the things that comes to mind and something that we as an organization have spent a lot of time on is on the jamming side of things, jamming things, not just in terms of perhaps signals, but jamming things with too many packets. Is there, what, and from the security side of this, what's, what's your sense of how the design would prevent or be vulnerable to things like uh, denial of service attacks? Yes, that's always an issue and a concern. Uh, because of the relatively simple network communications we're talking about, you know, in, in rough terms, it's like all we have to be able to do is send a UDP packet. We're not looking for acknowledgments even on any short time scale. And so it's relatively easy to plan for sending the message multiple times in multiple different channels. We'll send it from different IP addresses to multiple IP addresses and also over HF radio. So that makes the jammers job harder when there can be a lot of different ways for the message to get through. So that's a that's a useful thing. But I'm also, as I'm working through this networking design, trying to have some amount of basic sanity checking so that we can discard any obviously bogus packets that arrive. So we're trying to put some amount of DOS protection into the system, more than is traditional. In, in IP networks. So who, who would be in charge of this system? I mean, does it have a secretariat? Is someone an officer who's kind of in charge both at the global level of all the different Catalinks combined as a network system as a whole or within each country? No, well, there can't be anybody in charge because, as I like to say, if you're talking about countries with nuclear weapons, you're already talking almost by definition about countries that are prepared to spend as many billion dollars as it takes to build things themselves. They're not willing to take anybody else's word for it. So we'll have a coordinated effort. You know, there's a repository with some source code. And so that's a centralized place in some sense. But I imagine the deployed systems do not automatically download patches from that central repository. No. Uh, each country would be checking things as they come in and satisfying themselves. But, but as they discover unanticipated problems in the system, or if there's some kind of unexpected breakdown in the moment or nearly in the moment of a crisis, is there a technical support group that they can call upon, or do they just have to do that by themselves I mean, the advantage of open source, in a sense, is that the decentralized network of developers is constantly adding to that stock of knowledge that, that is built into the system. So there's that layer of accountability and support. But really, the users are on their own, aren't they, in terms of operating the system? I think it's very much like the internet today. There's no one central authority, really. I mean, there's some groups that have some kind of authority to issue numbers or something. But on a day-to-day -day basis, there's no central authority. Uh, you have operators at each end that know each other and work together. And when there's a problem, they find another channel to communicate over and solve the problem cooperatively. And I think that's really what we're seeing here as well. Right. So it's a choice of each national leader uh, to decide whether or not they want to use Catalink or respond to someone else who is using it. 
That's right. That's exactly right. And I would anticipate that different groups would all have their own subnetworks, so to speak. Uh, that is, they might each be using the same kind of design, same kind of hardware, but the national leaders have their group, and maybe the secretaries of state have their group, and maybe the commander of the joint chiefs, uh, you know, they have their own separate group. So I, I expect there's a certain amount of diversity that way as well. But for the developers, they don't need any kind of security clearance because this is open source by definition, the way we're doing it, it's open source. So really the only security issue relates to who is involved in developing and sending the message and receiving it and translating it and working with the commanders and the national leader. And that's really a question of each country having to to clear the staff, is that right, in their own country? Yes, exactly right. The The message content will obviously be highly classified, and the devices will obviously be slapped with a classification label, but you don't need a clearance to work on the public design. So we've gone pretty far down into some of the, the technical elements of how this actually work. We've talked a little bit about how it would come together. We talked in depth with, with Ron Minnick and Tom Burson to a certain degree in recent podcasts about how the international cooperative piece of this would, would have to work per what you were just describing in terms of you know security clearances and how do you actually keep the whole package updated, et cetera. You don't have some central authority. There's you know no one person telling people how to do their business with this. How do you maintain trust in something like that? So for the naysayers who may be out there listening to this, uh, or they assume they can write it off because there's there's no way to maintain trust in something that's inevitably having to be updated and patched on a routine basis. How does that actually work? How do you keep that trust? Well, it's it's like the open source projects you talk about. These work well when the team of developers that are managing this central repository show that they're responsive to people from around the world sending in problems and offering suggestions. Now, I think the the most important of these is that there be a way to send in confidentially a report of a vulnerability so that the developers can assess, you know, screen out the ones that are real from the larger number of ones that are reported, but uh, just a misunderstanding. And if they make it easy to contact them, and if they drop everything else they're doing and immediately jump on it, analyzing the problem and issue a patch and warn every user about that a patch is available and so forth, that's the most important single thing. The nature of this repository technology is that everyone agrees they're seeing the same source tree. So it's not like someone's going to secretly put in a backdoor that doesn't get noticed. It, you don't have to trust the central dictator for the, the source tree in that sense. Each country can review for itself and be confident that they're seeing every change. So, so that's sort of built into the, the mechanism. But this doesn't get at the problem of, well, what if there are a whole bunch of security flaws in the system? And honestly, we're trying to avoid that by radically simplifying the design. If there are a ton of security patches, at least you know after we're through the initial trials, then I will have failed. <laughs> so blame me. Well, a very sort of follow-on problem, a segue there is, and we touched on this in our previous discussion with Tom Pearson in the in the podcast series 
when you're trying to build something that is cryptographically strong, in fact, nearly impossible to break, uh, there's still a chance that the technology will fall into the wrong hands and that bad guys and gals have Catalink uh, for their own purposes, not the ones it was designed for. Can you share how you think about how you would recover from that problem if it were to eventuate? Well, that is true of of our system and any open source system. And in my mind, actually, almost any technology that it's going to be used for multiple purposes and it may be used by people to do evil things. I'm not happy about that, but that's kind of, that's life. What I would note is that our particular system is going to be hard to break, but it does involve certain things like this face-to-face key exchange that I hope will not be a problem at all for national leaders, but it's not ideal for the kinds of child pornography that this Facebook FBI case was fighting. You know, So in some ways, law enforcement has more chances to catch a bad guy with our system than with other existing systems. So I expect the bad guys will go somewhere else, but no guarantees. So Eric, we've gone almost exhaustively through a lot of the different pieces to this, and thank you for your time. I do have to ask here, maybe to, to wrap things up, we talked with Ron and Sobrata about supply chains. We talked with John about how to galvanize political buy-in in this concept in order to make sure that folks know that this is something that they should be bought into and that they should trust. We talked with Tom Burson about all of those things. What, what's your sense going into this in terms of what really the biggest challenge is going to be? We've talked about the cryptography a bit here today. You alluded to the, the political piece. What, what do you think is going to be the biggest challenge in pulling this thing off and making sure that it actually is in the right hands? And, and how, how maybe can we overcome that challenge? Yes, there are plentiful challenges on all fronts. The, the part I'm working on is trying to select tastefully as I can just enough functionality to still have a general purpose computer but support orders of magnitude, fewer lines of code. So we have a chance of making it really secure. And maybe that's crazy hard, but certainly no harder than securing a global electronic supply chain or getting all world leaders to agree on anything. So fun in all directions. On that happy note, uh, and indeed, we've definitely got our work cut out for us, but really to be much thanks to you that, that we've had this inspiration for this idea and the the reality of what we could possibly pull off is in large part because of the leadership you've shown on this. So can't thank you enough for that. And thank you again for joining us here today. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks, Eric. That was brilliant. Thanks again, Eric. As always, thanks to all of our listeners. We'll be back again later in July with another episode of The Fourth Leg as we continue this conversation around this Catholic system. And we'll be speaking with the one and only Sri Krishna Devabhaktuni about mesh networks. Be sure to come back and check it out. Until then, subscribe to the pod via SoundCloud or we'll see you online via Twitter or website. Thanks again, everyone, for listening.